This is The Strategist, episode 813. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Stephen Carter. What the fuck, man? Sorry, Hogan. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. There's a division of labor here, and I don't get to do a lot on this show, okay? That's I've always true. been trying to be in your chair for a very long time. You never let me do it, and now you're just taking away what I have to be I doing? see the Toronto <laughs> Star described you as a liberal strategist today. Former liberal strategist. Oh, that's the in and out so quick, we didn't even... <laughs> Like, it was amazing. I think I was there for a hot second. Uh, but listen, uh, I've put that on my resume. I just I, I oh. let you know that. What I the Toronto it- Star fails to appreciate is that you can be part of the strategists, plural, but as a standalone strategist, I, I don't think so. That's like calling Ringo Starr a beetle. <laughs> I just wouldn't do it. Such a prick. It's First savage, to take my job. Savage start today. Rob me of my future. Ugh. How you doing, Carter? I'm good. I, I I took my wife uh, bike riding today, and I was gonna, you know, I taught her some new skills. This is so a like fucking horrible story. This is a total white guy story. And yeah. then like every white guy teaching his wife new skills on a mountain bike, I crashed a couple times because uh, you know I'm an idiot. So it worked okay. perfectly. That's she great. Corey. rode really well though. I'm just gonna power through Carter's story. Thank you, Carter, for that Good story. Wonderful anecdote. Uh, you Corey, should try outside. The NBA, outside the NBA is back. Oh, We're getting God. NBA scrimmages. Yeah, the NBA's back. Uh, I haven't seen any games yet, though. Bull Bull is bawling out of his mind. That's what I hear. Yeah. I also hear Gasol has lost a lot of weight. Skinny now. These are the, these are the plot lines that yeah. are actually captivating me right now. Yeah, nothing else is going on. Uh, just the NBA, Carter taking his wife for a bike ride, and of course me uh, having my future uh, totally squashed. No, it was your past that we squashed. Well, okay, well, you know, let's let's move beyond that because... There's some important things to discuss, namely that Corey Hogan will be appearing on West of Center. Now, now this is uh, this is a podcast that Carter, you and I have been invited yeah. to already, and they've yeah. finally gotten around as a pity invite to Corey. Well, I, obviously, I mean, you and I nailed it. We were we were fantastic, and now they thought, well, we'll bring in the weak link. We'll bring in the weak link to uh, see what he can do. See if well, he's I think actually off. the way the producer described it was hoping third time's the charm. So. Oh. Uh, that's upsetting. That's We're giving upsetting. them a lot of free promo. I feel like I feel like <laughs> we spent a good good five minutes cumulatively promoing uh, the West of Center podcast. Uh, I feel like Corey, uh, when you go on, uh, you need to ensure that they return the favor. So I think the first five minutes you're on there, just, I just talk about our podcast. I feel like that's what's going to be. Neat. I think that's fair. Uh, eat a bowl of Sherry's berries. Talk about my Andy mattress. Talk about the strategist. That's the plan. Zip Recruiter can never forget them. Uh, one of our premium sponsors uh, who have yet to pay us. This is the third straight year that they have failed to pay us. Uh, but we'll get back to that in a second. So on the uh, on the off chance that any of our listeners are still with us, do we want to talk about uh, politics maybe for a bit? Why are you rushing? What, what is with you today? Wow. Rushing the agenda. Jesus Christ. For a People second, tune in for the kibitzing. This is what for, they come for. for. A fucking you know? second I took your job at the Toronto Star and now you're just after me. Oh, Jesus so angry. Christ, Hogan. Okay, let's move it on. Let's move it on to our first segment. We should no! probably talk about the conservative leadership race. Oh, okay. Stephen oh, Carter, oh, calm the fuck down, oh, man. Oh, God. Three weeks in a row we opened with we. I couldn't handle it. Okay, yes, the conservative leadership. Sorry, You think bad. that's better? <laughs> Just to let you know. No. <laughs> do, you, do you actually think it's just an upgrade? Well, you got a clown car on one hand, and then you got a clown car on fire in the other hand. I mean, it works out. 
Well, let's start there, Stephen. What are your thoughts so far? I mean, we're in the dog days of summer. The conservatives, as as their sitting members right now, are are having all guns pointed to the finance committee and Justin Trudeau on the, on the Wee scandal. We may get to that, uh, but let's talk about this leadership race. What are you thinking of it right now? What are you seeing of it uh, from your strategist lens? Uh, what what sort of tidbits are you picking up on? Well, I, I mean, I'm I'm constantly amazed at how bad we do certain small pieces. Uh, we can't seem to create a video in this country to save our lives. Uh, Peter McKay's "How to Fill Out the Ballot" video. Um, made me hurt myself. I, it was I, painful. It was the only way. And, and you know, I mean, granted, the subject matter is not that great. I mean, Peter McKay. But still, you should try something, right? Like, you have to try and get people to actually fill in their ballots. And, and yes, a ranked ballot with four cha- four choices does challenge uh, many conservative voters. But, you know, this this shouldn't be that hard. Um, to get attention in this time. I mean, everybody uh, posting on Twitter that they'd voted and, and they were mailing their, their ballots in. I mean, my God, is this what we've stooped to in Canadian politics? Is this as low as we can get in terms of coming up with things to talk about? I mean, other than than, than throwing crap at Trudeau, uh, I've yet to see anything that, that vaguely interests me in any of these candidates. If you haven't seen this video of Peter McKay, it's uh, it's legendary. It's about four minutes in length. Uh, it starts with his wife uh, going to the mailbox and getting the piece of mail, which is, of course, the ballot to vote. Uh, she then hands it over to Peter, who then, like a Staples sales rep, uh, photocopies his driver's license. Uh, for the three minutes and 45 seconds, she just stands there, just looking at him, um, just sad. I feel like it was she was just really just broken on the inside. Uh, Corey... Outside of videos, what are your what are you sensing right now? What are you what are you kind of feeling in this race? Is there is there anything you're picking up on or any threads that you kind of find interesting uh, in the dog days of summer? Well, I'm not feeling a lot, um, but I'm not really supposed to be. It's a leadership race for a political party that I'm not affiliated with, and they are for for the members. They're not for us. And and if they were targeting in such a broad way that I was capturing their communications, I was capturing that excitement. In some ways, I would say, boy, that's not time or money well spent, right? So let's just set that as the baseline. I think the idea that this has been a boring see nothing race is is really where you stand and if you're a, if you're a conservative insider maybe you're a little bit more engaged in it and certainly um when you think about some of the fundamentals of the race the size of the membership the number of people who ran and paid three hundred thousand dollars for it and all of that there's reasons for the conservatives to think there's there's something there there's a foundation from which to build um but to answer your question about how am i feeling about it in terms of the strategy going forward it's really uh it's really interesting to talk to conservative organizers. I, I think it's fair to say that both sides seem supremely, both sides being in this case McKay and O'Toole, supremely confident they're going to win this thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually believe that either side is putting on airs. Both think they have the other. And that to me says somebody is going to be disappointed. And, and there's a difference between losing and being disappointed, right? And if you're a party that has to come together afterwards and your reaction is one of shock, it's going to take you a little bit longer to put your party back together. So August 21st probably can't come soon enough for the conservatives because they're going to have a bit of a mending job to do at the end of this thing, no matter which one of those two ends up on top. 
Carter, you know, we're about, you know, a, a less than a month away from that August uh, date that Corey mentioned. If you're organizing for one of these campaigns right now, you're a month away inside the bubble of a leadership race. Corey makes a very solid point that this is not for the general population. This is for the membership. If you're on the organizing or the campaign side right now, what are you back channeling? What are you back channeling to media? What are you back channeling to the rest of the membership? Is it just purely we're going to get this thing done? We're pure strength. We have this. Or is there more nuance you need to add to your message, especially when you're in such a small and tight bubble that you're communicating to? There has to be some sort of a hook uh, other than we're just winning. You know, you have to show them some sort of a reason why. And you saw that even uh, Trump's campaign manager put out some information about how they're actually winning. Um, they ha- you have to give them a reason to cover the, the the campaigns. And when you look at the the, the Google results from the from the last week, there there hasn't been much to cover because I don't think that even the backstories are working. You know, people, journalists love to cover the insider stuff. You know, the insider, how are we doing something? But in this particular moment, the insider stuff is pretty boring. You know, you've called every supporter that you have, making sure that they filled out the ballot the right way. And you've called them again, and you've called them again, and you've called them again, and you've called them again. And that's really all you can do because that's now how this campaign is going to be won or lost. And then you're going to sit around until August the 21st. Um, Not sure whether or not you should be generating media or not generating media or generating attention or not generating attention because you don't want to help the other guy. Um, So, you know, you're, you're just kind of sit. This is the downside of two things that I think the first thing is they were unfortunately impacted by COVID. This isn't their fault. No one knew when the right time to put the, you know, the, the dart in the, in the calendar was, it feels now like it's too late. It's too long. That's not the conservative party's fault. It'd be really fun to throw stones, but you you can't at that. But the other thing that they did is they, they, they managed this process to have fewer candidates, right? Last time was a gong show. What was it? 16 candidates. Um, you know, Deepak Obri was running. I mean, Deepak Obri didn't even get his own votes. Um, you know, like he didn't vote for himself in the leadership. Um, that's where, um, you run into problems when you try and control these things too much, right? We had too many people last time, so we're going to make a $300,000 entry fee. We're going to make it really hard for people to get in. And so you wind up with uh, two legitimate candidates and two of the uh, far-right conservatives that that help rebrand your party as a far-right conservative party because obviously half of the candidates that are running are far-right conservatives, and that's, you know, that's not right for that party if they're going to win in places like Quebec. Corey, let's let's talk about the final month of a leadership race, right? You know, you guys have both run leadership campaigns. You know, sometimes these things drag on, but kind of what does the final stretch look like, regardless of what time of year it is? In this case, we're looking at summer. We kind of covered the summer context, but but give give our listeners a bit of an inside view as to what mechanics are going on right now in, in the final month of, of a leadership race. Yeah, it's it's get out the vote mode, right? You are trying to persuade still insofar as you think there are people still to be persuaded. But, uh, but at this point, you should have a pretty good sense from your lists who's pretty locked for a candidate who is who is one of those persuadables. Uh, you're using your candidate as much as possible on those persuadables. You're, you're, hopefully they are working the phones like crazy to create that personal sense of connection in the areas where they do the highest value, especially in a point system. And then you are having everybody else in the campaign who is not persuasive. So, you know, the people who are carrying your water, your MPs, your senators, I suppose, and whatnot, you're getting them to yank vote, just pull vote as much as they can. And ideally, you don't need to use the people who 
persuade for pulling vote. Ideally, your organization is tight enough that, that that's, you, you can distribute that workload accordingly because lay organizer can pull vote. Lay organizer cannot persuade as a general rule. Right? Mm. Um, so, so there's that allocation. There's that nervousness. There's the sense that your universe is kind of set and um, it is going to be what it is to a certain extent at this point. We've talked about this before. And you do have, a, or maybe just me, but you can have a habit of kind of spinning yourself up into a lot of very elaborate activities that are not necessarily of high value, because this is also a point where there are certain whole arms of your campaign that don't have very much to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In, in particular, I think about the communications arm, like when you think about broadcast communications. And so you have to sort of fight silly season as a campaign manager, too, because uh, you're going to have a ton of ideas and a ton of quasi-idle communications geniuses trying to trying to have that one out of the park swing carter anything to add there in terms of what what are the mechanics in the final month of a leadership well no i mean it's also in this particular case i think it's relatively straightforward because you've got two such front runners um in in other campaigns there's a lot of deal making that goes on uh this ranked ballot structure is very interesting trying to figure out where a campaign's second third fourth choices is going to go um if there were more candidates is is super important um i mean we saw maxime bernier lead right up until the last ballot um in the last conservative leadership that that is where the work of the campaign manager, the campaign strategist goes, uh, in the last few weeks. Um, you know, we, I did a campaign in British Columbia and the deal, uh, was struck, I think with about four weeks to go. And, and Andrew Wilkinson wound up winning the, the liberal leadership. Um, in no, I think in no small part because of the deal that was done, but that work, uh, you know, that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. I mean, even us with Doug Horner, uh, Allison Redford's leadership here, you know, getting Doug Horner's voters to our side, Doug wasn't going to endorse. He was, he refuses, he refused to admit that he was going to come in third place. Uh, so getting him to change his mindset was near impossible. And that's why we concocted our endorse Doug Horner strategy. We told his, his, his voters who they were supposed to vote for. This is interesting right now because you don't want to be Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay endorsing either Derek Sloan or, or, or Leslin uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis. I get that right. I got that right. Um, You know, this is not, they they don't want to be endorsing those people because they don't want to be showing any weakness right now. So there's no real strategy to try and pick up their votes other than just trying to call every single person in the party. Corey, you wanted to add something? Well, I have I've long wondered if our campaigns aren't far longer than they need to be. You look at the British, you look at uh, Boris Johnson. It was a month for round one and a month for round two. They had a two-round leadership contest concluded in... Two months. Now, the first round is just a vote of MPs, to be fair, but two months to finish everything, including a, a general membership vote. Uh, the Conservatives announced their leadership contest on December 12th, the day I remember because it's my birthday. Strategist fans, mark your calendars. Yeah. Uh, but that's eight months that you've got a leadership contest going on for. And obviously, COVID is a, is a complicating factor here. But it was supposed to be June 27. It was still supposed to be a six-month leadership contest. These are very long contests, and I do wonder how much value gets added in these later days. Well, you know, in oh, go ahead, Carter. You're adding a bunch of new members 
that aren't your core membership. Um, this is the complaint about Alice and Redford all the way through is, you know, everybody goes out and they try and sell memberships and members have a value beyond the membership that they buy. But the longer a campaign goes, the, the more you're reaching past your your first targeted set to your second targeted set to your third targeted set. And the, the, the incremental value of the members being added in the fifth month are, is pretty minimal. Uh, and oftentimes it is exactly the wrong type of membership for the party. I would love to see uh, very quick uh, two and three month leaderships, even two, you know, even a month and a half. Um, we have at our fingertips the best communication tools we'll ever have. The problem is that campaigns need some time to spin up to raise money. Uh, but if you knew you were doing a, a month and a half leadership, they'd spin up their money You'd right really early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and look, pe- people are deadline driven. So you're going to have that surge at the membership deadline, whether that membership deadline's in one month or in eight months. That's just the reality of things. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had my druthers, I would I would mandate that every Canadian political party move to a shortened cycle and a delegated cycle. This one member, one vote cycle is is the death knell of political parties. And and we kind of saw it last time with uh, with an unexpected leader, in Andrew Scheer. And we might see it this time for some people, especially, you know, for those who might be surprised and are not paying attention that Aaron O'Toole could end up being that leader. So let's talk about that a bit more, because O'Toole's been doing some interesting things, at least from the public facing standpoint. He talks about the party wanting to take climate change seriously. And until we get serious on climate change, we're not going to be uh, in, in government. Surprising, one might say, considering he's the f- more further right of the two candidates uh, with McKay and, and him uh, being the top two. But let's talk about the O'Toole strategy right now. Corey, I'm going to go to you on this first. If you're him right now, you know, uh, outside of turning out the vote, are you looking to do anything else? Is there some version of a an October surprise you're trying to throw into the mix? Uh, wh- what's O'Toole doing right now? So that is something you can do with the time between the end of the membership and, you know, the shooting actually happening, the ballots actually being counted. If you think you are going to win, you can start positioning yourself for that that general election for that broader conversation with Canadians if you don't think he's going to trigger an election. And it does seem like he's taking a bit of a pivot towards the center. Um, even if you argue that it's not a big policy shift for him, he hasn't exactly you know, had a change of heart around the carbon tax, for example. Uh, the fact that he is talking about an issue that so many Canadians place so highly but is not is clearly not geared towards diehard conservative voters tells you listen if you don't if you didn't believe me saying hey I'm talking to insiders there who who think he he thinks he's going to win I think those actions show you that he thinks he's going to win he's starting to think about how he gets that broader tent built and he knows part of it has to be a climate change policy this is a glaring weakness of conservatives at this point yeah, it was the reason I think the conservatives did so poorly in the last election. It was the climate change election, and they didn't have a real climate change policy. If if they bring in a decent, decent climate change policy, um, you at least check that box. And realistically, it's going to happen. You know, we're, everybody's going to be asking for that policy anyways. So get get ahead of the game. This is the the the, the opportunity to do that. But you have to choose wisely if you're an O'Toole. You can't choose any policy that's going to tick off your the core base. And keep in mind, both he and McKay did campaign to the right of center, right of center, right? Like the, the, these people were the right, right wing. They weren't just the right wing. Um, those are the people who uh, bought memberships in the past. Those are the people who um, were arguably behind two of the bigger candidates uh, in the last in the last leadership. So you know, you can't necessarily go too far with the policy announcements that you should be putting out uh, in order to start building that big tent until you know you've won. 
Quite yeah, un- you got to be careful because you have not won yet. To your point, Carter, it's um, it's one of those things where if you're spending your time on this and perhaps making it less likely that you can persuade some of those very few voters that are still out there to be persuaded, um, that might not be time well spent. So to that point, then, Corey, do you feel like this is a good strategy by O'Toole? Like the conventional <clears throat> wisdom is that for him to win this thing, he obviously needs McKay not to win on the first ballot. And then he needs the social conservatives that would come with Lewis and Sloan to follow him through the subsequent rounds. Uh with that being said, does something like, you know, bringing up climate change into the into the zeitgeist of the race help him? Or, or is that just a risk right now as you see it? Well, it's impossible to know without knowing his numbers. Uh, if he feels like he's going to win 55, 60% of the vote, maybe it's the time to do it. Maybe it's to start bleeding a tiny bit of that back and uh, and position yourself for what could be a snap election. Uh, if we get to we, maybe we'll talk a bit about some of the, the timing questions around there. But um you know, it's also quite possible because he comes baked in with it. It's the only Nixon could go to China thing. Maybe Aaron O'Toole is the conservative who can talk about climate change because his bona fides are not really in question here. People do tend to see him as a, a true blue conservative. So uh, again, they would have numbers that would let them know that they would have some research and some insight into that. So it's it's tough to tough to measure from the outside. I would say it's not it's not inherently a bad strategy. It really depends on what they've got, um, uh, what they understand the lay of the land to be. Carter, same question to you. What do you make of the O'Toole strategy as you see it from the public face right now? This this shift to the center a bit, uh, knowing that that for his success, you'll still need social conservatives to push him through. I think he thinks he's doing really well. I think that he thinks his numbers are really strong and that he is going to be picking up uh, second and third choices out of the other two candidates. And he's starting to position himself uh, to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, if that's the case, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see Peter McKay's response. But right now... What would it be um, for you if you were running that that shop right now? You're, you're, you see this as a sign of confidence from your opponent. He's, he's clearly not going to win on the first ballot, this being O'Toole. If you're the McKay camp right now, are you... Are you holding back? Are you issuing a response? What do you think you're doing? I don't know. I mean, these things get so convoluted. By the time you're in these deep into these leaderships, you don't know what's up or down. Um, my strategy, if I were in the Peter McKay camp, would be you do what you want to do. I'm going to get my vote out. You keep talking about climate change. I'm going to focus on my getting my vote out. Um, that was clearly the the message behind his botched video. Um, maybe a new video, you know, something good. Carter, does it does it just enhance the urgency to win on first ballot like i know that's been his strategy the whole time and he has to win on first ballot but does that just make it even more serious especially if your opponent thinks they've got you uh, on a third fourth fifth round yeah i mean i think that there is no way that uh peter mckay picks up significant amounts of of of, of votes from places three and four um and that's all that matters. So if he can't pick those significant votes up, then he needs to be in a position where he can win on the first ballot. I mean, let's assume that just for just for fun, 40 percent of those two you know, of the third and fourth candidates, uh, Sloan and Lewis, um, drop off completely. Then you're left with 60 percent of the total. Are, are you getting one of three of those ones? If you're Peter McKay, maybe if you're lucky, maybe it's one in five. So the math on it is pretty pretty tough it means that mckay has to be uh above a 46 i think in order to win depending on how many votes the other two pull like 46 percent is basically you've won like that's that's and i think that that's where he's going to have to be if he's at 45 
45.8, I would be willing to bet 10 bucks that he loses, which is a bet that Corey will take because he knows how good I am at prognostications. <laughs> Money begs Carter, puts his 10 bucks down. Uh, Corey, I know you've got the archive of Stephen Carter predictions. We'll not play one here, but I've got the same <laughs> well, question. Hold on, Zane. Jeb Bush needs to survive this primary and compete in a general. Jeb Bush is not surviving this primary. He's totally surviving this primary. Mark it down on your calendar, okay? Stephen Carter said So, today, so hold, on, hold on, Jeb Bush is the guy. <laughs> oh, man. Perfectly typed, Corey. It's like oh. we knew that was going to happen. Uh, Corey, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you finish this segment off, which is, same question. You know, if if you are O'Toole, you're reading the tea leaves of your opponent, they feel like they've got the wind behind their back, kind of like how Carter now has after that clip uh, we played. Uh, if they feel like they've got that their wind behind the back, you're the O'Toole campaign, they feel like they're shifting to the center. Uh, what would you add to Carter's strategy about get out the vote? Is there anything as you as a front runner needs to do right now, especially if your opponent thinks they've got you in subsequent rounds? Well, if I'm McKay, I am not biting on the climate change issue. I'm, I'm definitely not responding. For starters, responding makes it clear that O'Toole's in the driver's seat, right? Right. Uh, but also, only Nixon can go to China. It's not, you know, Hubert Humphrey couldn't go to China. McGovern couldn't go to China. His problem is, if he says anything about climate change, the people who are only begrudgingly accepting him as a conservative are going to say, oh, I told you, the guy's full of shit. He's not actually a true blue conservative to, to use that phrase again. So uh, I, I'm i playing my game. I'm not playing O'Toole's game. Um, my read of this race, and it could be totally wrong because everything is through a fog, hearing about it on a different continent, you know, by sailors who pass by here. But uh, I think McKay sold the most memberships. Uh, I think he's got an enthusiasm problem. I think the O'Toole campaign believes they have them when you consider the enthusiasm plus... Uh, you know, plus a number of people who came maybe through McKay's membership portal, but aren't necessarily intending to vote for McKay. And uh, if you're McKay, you got to get your vote out. You've got, if you've got lower enthusiasm, you've got to work harder on GOTV. And that's what I would be spending my time on if I was Peter McKay. Okay, let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, we better talk about this person, woman, man, camera, TV. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Guys, let's talk about everyone's favorite, uh, cognitively uh, brilliant president of the United States. Uh, the Donald Trump saga continues, as we know it has, uh, and as we have, uh, I would say, rightfully ignored over the past couple of weeks for other more pressing issues. Uh, but it has not changed. The The level of, of news coverage for Donald Trump in the United States is uh, still in rapid fire. Uh, you know, what are we seeing recently? Well, we're seeing that his campaign is now coming out explaining why he has lost for an election that's still 100 days away. Uh, we're seeing his campaign come out and talk about polls being falsified and not counting uh, the strong GOP enthusiasm. Uh, he's also fired his campaign manager, which, by the way, this is where you guys take a bow uh, around uh, the, the the strategist podcast, uh, being the first and only uh, political podcast to to talk about that. So take that, Canada Land. By the way, let me just tell you something. When people say, why are we so petty and taking a shit on Canada Land? Uh, the answer is we will not stop until we are dominating the market. And uh, and that will continue. Carter, no. I feel like that's just on brand. So anyways... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that bracket on Canada land open. Anyways, uh, no one else predicted it except us. The campaign manager is fired. And now Hill Republicans are also distancing themselves from Donald Trump. Corey, what do you make of everything that you see uh, from the Wallace interview to Trump's cognitive test to all of the items mentioned above to the explanations of a campaign as to why they're going to lose 
Uh, what are you seeing here? I wish you could just take a month of this news coverage and go back in time to 2016 even. You know, I was going to say like 2000, but like we are a frog in water. The fact that all of this has become normal is is probably the most abnormal thing about it all. This is like all of this is so deeply weird and so deeply disqualifying in any other time that it's actually a bit hard to process and it's certainly disorienting and people talk a lot about whether uh, Trump is crazy or crazy like a fox, I, like I've said before, I think he's just a cornered animal. I, I think he's just a fox, right? Yeah. But um, when you when you talk when you see some of these things like, oh, that's not counting the GOP support, that's not counting the GOP enthusiasm. I, every Republican campaign that's been losing, every presidential one in modern times has said a version of that. The Romney campaign said that. The McCain campaign said that. Do you remember the website Unskewed Polls where they would take the support and say, well, more of the population is Republican, so let's just add Republicans into the... Spoiler alert, the polls were not wrong in that case. And by the way, for everybody pointing to a polling miss in 2016, it wasn't exactly a huge miss. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. It it came down to relatively few votes in the Midwest. And Nate Silver, God love him, said there was a 30% chance this would happen. And then it happened. And people were floored. Like, you know what? Next time you go and you put money on like the first twelve on roulette, you made the same bet that Nate Silver did that uh, that uh, Trump was going to win. So let's 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 give credit where credit's due there, and let's not take a round out of the pollsters for last time. So all to say, he's losing. He's losing right now, and it may be exacerbating some of the weirdness we're seeing. In some ways, I think our best hope is he loses big because he's also making noise about maybe not accepting the outcome of this election. Yeah, yeah. I'm back and forth on both sides of that because I think if he if he loses and it's close, he's going to say that it was obviously rigged. Look, we we lost by a, sh- a small number of votes, and if he loses and it's big, then he's going to say to his supporters, "There's no way this could have happened. It's so obviously rigged." And if you look at the the some of the polling has now started to ask the question, you know, is there a possibility that this election could be could be pulled or could be rigged? Most, not quite most yet. I think it's forty four or forty three percent of Republican voters, Trump voters, feel that this uh, election is rigged and it is being stolen uh, by Donald Trump. And he's got 100 days left, 100 days as of today to further that narrative. Then he gets another 100 days or, or thereabouts from the election until the swearing in of Joe Biden. And during both of those 100-day periods, we're going to see uh, a misinformation campaign um, that is truly Trumpian um, because he is the king of misinformation. Um, He believes what he says, and he surrounded himself with sycophants, none of which is going to to walk into the Oval Office and say, sir, uh, for the good of the country, we're leaving. Uh, I mean, who are we looking at that that stellar list of, of staff that he's got on his team. Who are we looking at? Stephen Miller? You think Stephen Miller's going to walk in there and, and suddenly shift uh, the direction that the, the, the president is, is taking? It's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, Barr? Barr is, is the co-author of the situation that we're in. This is not a, a situation that, um, that I'm particularly excited about. I'm, I'm, I am beyond nervous uh, about this situation, and I fear that shots will be fired. And and that prediction, I'm not putting any money on because that's freaking me out. I'm freaked out. Th- that being said, Stephen, you know, let's put your values, your thoughts, your sentimentality aside. 
because that's what this show is all about. Oh yeah, and yeah. Let's yeah. say okay. let's say that there was a a call that you received right now. It's a it's ninety nine days as of tomorrow, and I need you, Stephen Carter, to assign, assemble a ninety nine day strategy, not to maybe necessarily win this campaign for Team Trump. But to maybe have better messaging than explaining why we're going to lose. Uh, so, so, so let's start here. What is some? Give me some headlines. Uh, what would you be doing differently if you were in the Trump bubble right now, right? And I know he does, of course, doesn't you know prescribe and 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 have the values that you share. But let's say you're hired to do this. What are are some of the basic headlines and principles that you're constructing right now, knowing that this is potentially a ship that's going in only one direction, which is which is down. Uh, how are you? How are you constructing the narrative of of a losing campaign? Are you trying to, you know, continue the misinformation war? Are you going to pivot elsewhere? What do you do? I'm going to remind everybody how great things were before COVID. Right, everything was great prior to COVID. Everything was uh, moving along the way we wanted it to move, and then COVID came along, and this is just a temporary setback. But the markets have never were never so high. Employment was never so high. You never had as much money in your pockets, and you may not like President Trump, but I know that you like having money in your pockets. I know that you liked having more opportunity than you've ever had. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're Hispanic, or if you're white. No one is, there's never been a period where you didn't have more money in your pocket uh, than under President Trump. And I would say that just because COVID has hit, um, there's not a reason uh, to back away from this. COVID is going to go away. And who do you want in the, in the Oval Office when COVID is gone? Someone who puts more money in your jeans. Interesting. So you're saying that America pre-COVID was great and that Donald Trump is going to make America great again. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I like, no, I think that's, why, uh, why, yeah, you're, you're welcome. You, you're, dick? you asked you're welcome. me a terrible question. No, I, th- the question. I thought that was, I thought that was quite an enlightened answer, which is you effectively avoid talking about COVID. You just tell the American public that pre COVID, the world was amazing under my leadership. It's not a bad strategy. You don't have many to play with. I actually don't think that's a bad message to hit on. Corey, same question to you. Do you want to, uh, both responding to Carter? I, I mean, but- I, it's, it seems pretty clear to me that was Trump's strategy, and uh, and it's getting harder and harder to ignore COVID. And so now he's having to look at it a bit more broadly. Um, let's get into tinfoil hat reckless speculation here. But the other thing that occurs to me when Trump says all of a sudden COVID is a big problem is you can't cancel elections or make it hard to vote if COVID is under control and no big deal. But if the disease is terrible, if all of a sudden things are very bad, you have a basket of tools and they don't necessarily need to take the the um, form of outright canceling elections. But it could be, oh, no, no, this is very hard. We You cannot vote in person like this. And you, you can only vote in these ways that'll make it less convenient for you if you're of a certain demographic. So if you're lower income and you can't take time off work, if you're a you know minority who is in an area with fewer voting stations and has to travel to vote, I, I think that in some ways, him saying the disease is terrible puts some of those things on that couldn't have been on under his previous uh, previous strategy. So if I'm a Democrat, I'm watching very, very carefully because I am a suspicious man. And uh, if my son shall be struck by lightning, I'm going to hold some people in this room accountable. And look, um, as far as Trump goes uh, on strategies of actually trying to win people's love instead of just trying to get people not to be able to vote, which I still think is probably some version of a, a more likely GOP strategy, uh, talk about the economy. Absolutely. 
But then you're also going to be trying to put as much of a spotlight as possible on Joe Biden. You know, it's funny. We've been talking about Trump now for how many minutes? Joe Biden's name hasn't come up. That doesn't help Donald Trump. Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump needs people looking at Sleepy Joe and the fact that um, he just sort of fumbles his way through life at this point. Well, th- thank you so much, Corey. I just wanted to make mention that this segment has been brought to you by QAnon. Uh, QAnon, your one-stop <laughs> shop uh, for reckless speculation. Uh, Carter, uh, what, what, do you, what do you make of, of what's, uh, what Corey just said here? Because, I, I mean, it's... I hate to say it, it's not horrible. It does make sense in the sense of, you know, you want to do a bit of both. You want to vote suppress however you can, if that means extending the life cycle of COVID. Man, as insane as that sounds. That's well, I didn't part- say he was going to extend it. I'm no, saying he he's no longer no, saying pr- it's no big deal. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. And and, and not having the, uh, and having the escape pass to say that there's things need to be done differently, right? Um and then it's a bit of, you know, focusing attention on, on Joe and, and then doubling down on economy. Anything to respond to there? Well, I mean, the, the challenge is that the process of the elections is is articulated fairly clearly that it is the states who run uh, these elections. I mean, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't put it past Trump and his and his team uh, to say that the states are incapable of of administering the elections. They've been incapable of dealing with covid. Uh, it's all the state's faults. Uh, the federal government is going to step in. We're going to print ballots. Uh, we're going to mail those ballots out. And only the ballots mailed to the zip code 220500 are going to count in this election. Oh, any, any any ballots mailed somewhere else aren't going to count. Um, the states are have have invalidated their right. And, it wouldn't, and I'd watch a bunch of sycophantic Republican go- governors line up and say it's the best idea they've ever heard. Um, and then the Democratic governors lose their mind. Um, Supreme Court would lose their mind, I would hope. Um, but it would still be a split decision because the Supreme Court's a disaster. But, you know, this is that I don't put it beyond him. I think it's impossible, but I, I think he could try. Uh, so that, I, I'm ahead, not Corey. actually saying that the federal government is going to take over the running of elections. You only need Republican governors in a couple of close swing states to do something along these lines with the, you know, but it needs to be consistent with the president's narrative or else it's not likely to help you. And I also don't believe it'll be by mail. I, I think it'll just be a more difficult version of voting in person that will be made easier for certain demographics if it goes down this road. But look, he wants his October they- surprise to be a vaccine. I think that's the – I've already used one casino metaphor today. I think he's putting all of his chips over there. Like he's hoping that come October there's some vaccine for this thing and he can take credit for it. If they do uh, end up going vote by mail, of course, there's an excellent uh, video by Peter McKay and wife uh, that I feel like (laughs) they should – they should emulate uh, if they go down that road. You guys talked about the states, and I want to go here for a second. So let's park the Trump conversation. If you are are working for, let's say, one of the uh, senators in, in, a, in a pretty Republican state right now, are you leaning into Trump knowing that this is a sinking ship? Are you still trying to do a slight pivot where you're distancing? What are you kind of doing if you're a Hill Republican or a Senate uh, Republican in, in a pretty strong Republican area. And let's be clear, Trump is losing in a lot of polls that have been traditionally very strong Republican areas. So how are you kind of distancing yourself without um, getting the wrath of the president for those who are going to show up for him at those polling uh, polling stations? Carter? Well, I mean, I think that you're seeing some people distance themselves on on thinking around COVID right off the bat. That's, that's the easy one. Um, Trump... Uh, 
Trump actually now is following a number of Republican governors. Um, you know, some of the ones that that doubled down early on on Trump's rhetoric. Uh, DeSantis in Florida jumps out. Um, they're really screwed, and backing away from that's going to be really hard. Uh, but let's divide the Republican Party into into three parts. Uh, the first part is uh, are the Trumpers, right? The the Trumpers have been absolutely dedicated to Trump and they're not going anywhere. And yes, there are Congress pe- people running for Congress that do believe in the QAnon conspiracies. Um, so that group isn't going to change because it is foundational to who you are, all the conspiracies, all the stuff that Trump has done. So that group, one third of, of Republicans don't change. Another group of Trumpers, um, let's call them the Jeff Session Trumpers, the ones who jump on and you can, you know, Lindsey Graham uh, comes to mind. You know, he was against Trump. It was going to be the downfall of the Republican Party. And uh, the second he won, even before he won, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham uh uh, Lady G, he was, you know, he, she was right there, right there. Um, I'm going to say something nasty, but you know, you know, our, our listeners can fill in the blank, fill in the metaphor for what Lady G was doing to Trump. Um, but that happens. And then there's the third group of, of Trumpers of, 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 of Republicans, and they're already gone. They're already gone. They're, they're not making up. Uh, they left some time ago. Is, is it Kasich? Who's, uh, Who's speaking to the Democratic convention? Um, you know, like they left four years ago and they're gone. I want to see what Mitt Romney does. Mitt Romney, you know, he should be standing up and screaming at the top of his lungs. Every once in a while, he puts out a strongly worded tweet. Um, that's not good enough. That's not going to be good enough. And and he's lucky in that he doesn't face election in this in this cycle. But uh, if he did, I mean, Susan Collins faces election. She's trying to distance, but she's dead. She knows she's dead. I don't even think she's putting up much of a fight. So a lot of these people, they know they're dead. They're going to try and figure out what to do with next with their, their careers. They're signing book deals. They're moving on. Corey, you're wincing in disgust. Um, of course, uh, your natural face that you make whenever Stephen speaks. But, uh, but, 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 give me, give me some, some further context, right? If you're one of these folks that's on the bubble, that isn't a Trump-based sort of candidate, but he's the leader of your party and he's still popular with your party, what are you trying to do in order to to, to survive and perhaps even secure your future post-Trump? Yeah, well, first of all, the coolest thing about Lindsey Graham might be that he might be Lady G. So let's not, let's not. You're better than that, Carter. I sincerely mean. I'm that. not actually. I think you've known you that for need, some time. You don't. I no, think no, that no. Lady G to. is the best thing in the history of mankind. You. There was some innuendo there that I, I think we could have done without. But look, the, um, the if you're a senator in the United States and you are in a deep red state, you're ride or die with the president. His, yeah. His base is there, and they are going to determine either now or manifested otherwise in the future, uh, whether you live in a primary or not. Um, If you are a Republican in a blue state or a a light red state, a purple state, yeah, I mean, this is probably, you've got your primary. This is your time to get off the the train, right? Uh, Trump is losing by a lot. And this is where you've got to start putting some distance and expect to see more Republicans talking about the value of having a strong check on Joe Biden and the risk of the Democrats having the House, Senate, and presidency. You're going to see a lot more of that language coming, I think, through the fall if polls hold the way they are right now. 
We're going to put a pin in it right there and we're going to move on to our next segment. Our next segment. Are we fucking doing this or what? Guys, it is finally time to talk about our favorite subject. The Wii Enterprise, the Wii Organization, the Wii Charity. I don't even know what they are at this point. So many revelations this week in the story that Stephen predicted would be dead three weeks ago. Um, let's start. <laughs> let's start with. Wait, wait, wait. Stephen Carter said so, today, so hold on, hold on. Jeb Bush is the guy. In fairness, three weeks ago, if it, if the information that we knew three weeks ago had been all the information, this thing is over. But every week, this is the liberals' modus operandi. Every week they say, you know what? Let's stab ourselves in the foot again. Let's do it one more time. Let's do it one more time. Let's do it one more time. And they, 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 they are the worst crisis managers in the history of politics. Over to you, Zane. My bad. No, no, no. Let's go on this thread. Because how do you think this is happening? I mean, this is what I was talking about to the Toronto Star uh, just a few days ago about this this liberal strategy of how is this gone against the grain of issues management 101 carter do you feel like the issues management team within the pmo just didn't know all the facts so they couldn't dump it all out or do you feel like this is moving so quickly or this can't be strategic i guess is what i'm trying to say uh, explain to me or speculate for me uh what do you feel like is going on within the 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 pmo and and the issues management circle there well, and this isn't specific to we, but somewhere in this culture of the Liberal Party, there is a culture where uh, when an issues manager or, or some sort of title comes to the minister and says, is this everything? The ministers say, oh, yeah, that's everything. That's everything. And then they don't tell the truth. They have some sort of a, a, a problem where they don't air all the dirty laundry. If it's done at one, all at once, it's over. When it leaks out like this, you know, one day after one day after one day, and, and suddenly the finance minister is forced to write a $41,000 check, I mean, which which does two things. First of all, you took $41,000 from a charity, and secondly, you've got $41,000, you can just write a check. You know, it, it sets off this privilege problem that the liberals pro- have uh, with both Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau, who who don't know the, the you know, the maybe they know the literal price of milk, but they don't understand the, the, the importance of buying, of, 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 of how challenging the world is in this particular moment. Um, it just bothers me that this culture has happened at the Liberal Party where they don't have the foundation. Someone should walk into the minister's office, you know, uh, whether it's the prime minister, whether it's the finance minister, whether it's uh, another minister. You walk in and you say, tell me everything now. And if you don't tell me, it, t- tell me everything there is to know and write your resignation letter. I'm not walking out of this office until I have both of those things. And if something is not in, you know, if you haven't told me everything and something else pops up, I'm handing your resignation letter to the prime minister. Thank you. We're done. Wow. Like there Car- has to be some hard ass shit happening in that in that prime prime minister's office. Let's before I go to you, Corey, I want to I want to pick this thread up with Carter. Uh, is that how issues management offices run? Like give our listeners an understanding, right? You ran a bunch of issues managers when you were in the premier's office. Is this how you you know, have them, if there's a scandal or something, you have them go to ministers. You think that's a normal practice? You think that's a special practice? Just give us the insight as to, as to how this could work on the inside. Now, this was my job the, in, in in our government. We didn't have uh, issue managers like uh, uh, Matt Wolf. First that, of all, we- That was a new thing. That yeah. was a right. new thing, okay. I think, in okay. 2015. Right, we right, paid right. for talent. 
Anyways, um, when I went in and I, I actually, it's like my first day. We had a mistake from one of our ministers and I was sent in to clean it up. And you go into the minister's office. Actually, the minister is called to your office, which gives you a sense of how weird this is. Minister's called to your office. They come in with their hat in hand and you say to them, this is how this is going to end. You know, you've, you've just been appointed minister. It's no, no problem for us to change you. Tell me everything. And they tell you everything. And then you put forward a plan to manage it. And then it's managed. And then when it's, it's over, you go to the minister and you say, thank you for telling me everything. This is done. And it never comes back again because it's just done. And that minister is able to continue their career as a minister of the crown. Because, but it's, it's, the half, it's, the, it's the dishonesty by omission that seems to, and, and I don't know if it's because no one in the PMO is, is, is you know, picking up the phone and calling or getting, getting the minister into the office, or if it's um, omission from the ministers themselves. Like, how did Bill Morneau not say, oh, by the way, I went on this trip with my family uh, to Africa, you know, maybe I should pay this back. How was that not brought up in the very first meeting uh, where they were discussing how this thing's going to, how this is going to unfold? I don't understand it. Corey, give us your reaction, both on this broad scope of, of issues management, how you strong arm a minister, but also what you think happened here. Why are the liberals inflicting a drip campaign on themselves on a weekly basis? <laughs> well, uh, first off, very nice Toronto Star humble brag. Oh, I was talking about oh, Toronto, Toronto Star. Star. I mean, we talked about it up front. You literally outed me <laughs> at the top. The, of the, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is that um, in Calgary, nobody cares about the Toronto Star. And I think you actually had to lower your billable rate as a result of showing up in that newspaper. Oh. Uh, the second thing, though, I would say is that we are actually making the assumption that these details were not shared with issues managers. There is a possibility that Morneau said, hey, I just want you to know there's also this trip thing. That's true. And somebody made the assessment like, oh, okay, well, uh, that seems fine, which is unlikely, or maybe even like, oh God, well, if you if you pay them back, that's gonna look quite guilty. So let's just, let's hold on that. Let's not invite that grenade in our face. And, um, and maybe just before they got to committee, they became aware of the fact that people were aware of this fact. That someone that had it made. Decisions yeah. made. That's not an excuse. That that doesn't actually preclude the strategy both of you were talking about, which is get absolutely everything out first. I'm just saying we don't actually know it was Morneau who held back on this one. It could be that it was actually mismanaged. That's a good as well. point. And um and, and look, they, they should have absolutely unloaded everything out the door, including things that they didn't necessarily think were problems on, on day one. I was talking to a friend about this very topic. We were both incredulous about liberals be liberal in and, uh, and their ability to just blow off their feet on this matter. And he was reminding me about uh, in 96, when Glenn Clark became premier, there was a scandal with BC Hydro. And this was right after Glenn Clark wins the leadership. He, they dropped everything, everything you could possibly possibly know about this scandal to the media brutal coverage for a couple of days and then there was nothing left to report like and all of a sudden it's starved of oxygen and a couple of weeks later went to the polls and he wins so um there is a model here that is proven time and again which is like don't bleed all over the field right just just take it all on the chin and, and move on and um and let me just sort of wrap by saying, like, how rich is Morneau? I mean, he is, I left $41,000 in my other pants rich. You know, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, this all checks out, Corey, very similar to uh, what I told the Toronto Star 
uh, earlier today. <laughs> uh, very similar. Uh, let's okay. Let's take a shift from uh, from Morneau to Trudeau for a second. Uh, he's going to be appearing at the finance committee. Carter, talk to me about the strategy. So, you know, if you were running that PMO, would you yay and green light this strategy for Trudeau to show up at finance committee? Let's start there first. No, I wouldn't. Um, but maybe he has no choice now. Um, Back And I think I said I wouldn't two weeks ago. But again, now that they keep shitting on themselves, it feels like they may, you know, they may need the, the prime minister to step in and, and take the punches. Um, but imagine, imagine that that's the last step in your strategy. You know, you've had four weeks on this problem. And the last step in your strategy is, okay, I guess we're going to put the prime minister in to take the punches. Um, like yeah. who, who designs that strategy to end that way? Uh, I certainly wouldn't have designed the strategy to end that way. Uh, I would have had um, Morneau as the, as the primary uh, problem. Uh, but, you know, again, we didn't, you know, the, the, if, if this is all managed properly, then we don't wind up here. And the idea, by the way, that information is not going to get to the media is laughable. Uh, all information gets to the media. It just takes time. So you can't control these types of things. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Trudeau going and and going to the committee, but I'm not sure they have the choice left. What I would be doing right now is yeah, the most doing? intense, the most intense prep work ever. Um, the problem is the more you train Trudeau, the worse he sounds. He his his authenticity leaves him because he's uh, he's he's spouting lines. But you know what? I think in the middle of the summer in a committee meeting run by uh, by our friend Skippy, um, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine with just putting him up there uh, robot-like and uh, having him answer the questions in, in his robot tones. So no new information for you, Carter, right? This is strict talking points, all prep. This is not explaining the process of how this thing happened. This is going back and feeding back to messaging. Yeah, because this was all explained how this happened last week. This was all explained, you know, like we, we've been through the, the committee already where the, the the nuts and bolts of who said what and who thought of what has been described. Do not add any fuel to this fire by saying anything out of step with what has been said before. New information at this point is bad information. Yeah. Corey, same question to you. Would you have advised Trudeau go to finance committee and, and regardless of... Now that he's there, what are you advising him to do? Yeah, look, I mean, absent a time machine, after last week, he had to go to the committee. If they had done radical transparency up the top and dropped everything and he could say credibly to the Canadian people, there's nothing left to find out here. You know, for weeks, there's been no new details. Then you can get away with with trying to avoid a committee appearance. But the fact that we are learning details about this so regularly just it it makes it look like he's trying to hide if he doesn't go to committee so he's got to go i mean he's got to do that and when he's there he's got to hope there's nothing new now if i'm the conservatives there's got to be something new if they haven't held back a bit of ammunition for this this is the show this is the prime minister on the stand um well then they they've played this one inelegantly i should say um but but we'll see i i this, this could be a massive nothing burger, or this could be the start of a whole new chapter of this thing. Carter, you know, with that being said, the fact that we're on to week four of this story, that details are constantly being rolled out, that the that the basic political strategy of collecting and dumping hasn't necessarily uh, been allowed for the, for the liberals. Are we at the point where a head needs to roll, where someone needs to, you know, proverbially fall on their sword, leave... 
resign, get fired. Are we in that territory right now, part A and part B? If so, who? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with that strategy is that I think Canadians would only be satisfied with maybe maybe three different names, uh, the finance minister, the prime minister, and the chief of staff. Um, and I'm not sure that any of those three want their heads to roll. And I'm not sure the prime minister wants any of those three heads to roll. Um, so if you're stuck managing this, if you're being told that you've got to manage it without that, um, you know, I think you're still, you know, the, the, the prime minister's appearance is everything. Uh Ultimately, the head that is probably the most likely to roll is Bill Morneau. Uh, he's the one who made the, you know, and again, this will go to Corey's point. If Corey's correct and they knew this information, then his head doesn't need to roll. But if his, if they didn't know this information, it was new, then yeah, I think you got a real case that you, you've lost ministerial trust and uh, you got to go. Corey, same question to you. Are we at that point where someone needs to go and who? Uh, I don't think so. I, maybe it, it it would be an interesting play at this point because I don't know that it would stop the bleeding. It might actually just exacerbate it because all of a sudden, um, well, you, your problem fundamentally is that the most damning story is or maybe more is creeping up there with the $41,000, but the most damning story is still the prime minister's family, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, you know, the $41,000 is not even nearly, it's not even a fifth of what uh, the prime minister's mother was paid by this organization. So so it's tough to say what Morneau did was wrong, but what Trudeau did was fine. And I think that that's the challenge that they've ultimately got right now. So I think they've just got to, I suspect they just need to batten down the hatches unless there's some sort of creative angle that I'm just not thinking of right now. Uh, this is this is the challenge. It's It would be such a different story if this was a scandal of one of his ministers, but this is foundationally a Trudeau scandal. And if people start resigning about that, that is a very dangerous place to be if you're the prime well, minister. Well, is, is, when that, Jerry is that where we... Yeah, go ahead, Carter. When Jerry Butts stepped down with the SNC-Lavalin affair, it didn't have any positive impact. All you did was lose Jerry Butts. Um arguably one of the you know he's he's a smart man he he him being in the office is stronger and better when he left uh it had no practical impact on removing the scandal away from justin trudeau now it just became a scandal that was so big that he lost his principal advisor his principal secretary you do not want that situation to happen right now i, I think Corey's right we this, this should this should be a stand pat strategy you know, let's put a pin on on the liberals right now and what they're doing. And I want to look at the other stream very quickly of this we uh, scandal and saga, and that is we themselves, uh, the organization. So the Kielberger brother, brothers will also be appearing at finance committee. But I, I want to not focus on that as much as I want to focus on their messaging and their communications. So when we chatted about them previously, last three weeks or so, uh, we talked about, you know, what media advice we would give to them. They came out with their Globe and Mail piece. The word the, we is killing me right oh, now. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to say it over <laughs> and over again. It is going to be the bingo card word of the show uh, and all subsequent episodes, Corey. However, however, we... As in the three of us. Is that better? Do you like that better? It's nice. I like it. The, it's good, the yeah. three of us talked about 
what they were doing in terms of media strategy. Well, it turns out as soon as they did their initial apology tour, we're going to focus back on our, uh, you know, get back to the, the roots of our organization. They have since moved on to a much more offensive strategy. They're going after journalists. They're going after Brian Lilly at The Sun, uh, calling him out for, for a little bit of misinformation and misreporting that he had to apologize for. They're going after Charity Watch uh, for, for the letter grade that Charity Watch gave them. And they're, of course, going after Canada Land and Jesse Brown, who arguably was the first to introduce we into the public zeitgeist. What do you kind of make of of the organization's pivot from an initial, we need to introspect, we need to be true to ourselves, we're going to go back to our fundamental roots, and now saying, fuck all of you, we're just going to take as many shots as we can uh, and, and and go down swinging. Uh, any, any kind of thoughts that you have on, on what you're seeing from we? Yeah, the opening with sunshine and roses and then punching everybody in the face is aggressive PR in that sense. That combo is a hallmark of Navigator, uh, a PR firm in Toronto, who, who I believe has been hired uh, by we. And um, and you can expect to see more of that when you start thinking about uh, a bunch of different. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to get into it, but like just Google Navigator and, and look at how they've dealt with some of their PR candidates. This is this is very par for the course. Um, and I suspect that you are going to see we continue to be aggressive and continue to try to move the spotlight from them to their accusers and make people doubt whether those accusers have uh, have anything legitimate to say. That coupled with their, look, we are taking an honest look at ourselves is, is, is kind of that, uh, you know, hug and punch strategy that Navigator is famous for. Corey, is it that the right strategy in your mind? Like from what you sense right now, the, the current appetite for we as an organization is, is this the right strategy? Well, I don't know it's the wrong one. You have to kind of keep in mind where we is most exposed, and that is in those boardroom settings. They, they've they lost a couple of major corporate donors, KPMG, TELUS. KPMG is an accounting firm. It's not shocking that a scandal that involves accounting questions at its core, right, whether the charity was paying for it or not, uh, that they would be a little squeamish about it. But where they are exposed is in a boardroom, somebody suggests a contribution to we or suggests pulling a previous commitment to we and somebody says well hold on that jesse brown accuser do you know x about him right and and they're able to kind of bleed into the conversation and create that ambiguity at that boardroom setting that's not such a bad strategy to deal with that because you are not actually trying to win over the public writ large at this moment you are trying to keep the lights on and that means keeping the boards from moving rashly Uh, you want to make sure they're maintaining their commitments Or you want to make sure if a commitment proposal is coming forward that somebody at least is there saying, that's probably bullshit, the accusation you heard about them. Carter, what do you you make of the we offensive that we're seeing right now on messaging? Well, I think that it would be one thing if there was any sort of plausible deniability. Um, There isn't much plausible deniability on this. The prime minister's office is, you know, the prime minister is going to be uh, testifying in front of a committee. Uh, the boardrooms of Canada know that we is is a part of the scandal, and now they know that they're punching people. Um, this is, you know, they were they were going to be in trouble. I thought that the 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 strategy of uh, really reinvesting in the good work that you do, um, so you could go back to your corporate sponsors in in six months, uh, nine months. And say, look, it, we've we've really refocused ourselves on the good work that we do overseas and for children. Um, it's hard for corporate sponsors, I think, to walk away from good work. I don't think it's hard for corporate sponsors to walk away from a fist fight. And they're in a fist fight. I think that uh, if this is a navigator strategy, this is the wrong strategy. Um, I think that it's going to hurt we in the long run. And uh, we'll see. I mean, 
I, I'm an aggressive communicator. I love getting into a, into a, a communications fight, but this just never felt like the time to fight. This has always felt like a time to regroup around that which you value the most, and that is uh, supposed to be the good work, not punching Jesse Brown in the face. Uh, although I'm a fan in general, um, but <laughs> well, he, I mean, he got to go. He got to go testify at the finance committee. I have no idea what, what no that? one's asked us. No one's asked us. I just want to. I mean, I just really, wanna, I just, we're the ones with the insight here. And Jesse Brown gets into I am, a committee. I am putting Why it on the record. Why is a journalist going to a committee? Is he a journalist or is he a tattletale? What is he? Because if he's a journalist, you don't go to the committee. So that means he's a tattletale. Let me tell you something. I will. The finance committee. We don't know what we are, uh, but we will show up. Uh, we will one hundred percent show up. Uh, we can do a live show for the finance committee. It's something we've done. Private gigs in the past that also serve as testimony. Uh, so Comedy of course, gigs. just making that offer to the finance committee. <laughs> Give us a shout. Um, you may, you can find my digits. Uh, just look for today's uh, Toronto Star. You'll find it in there. Um, <laughs> okay, let's move it to our final segment. Our over, under, and our lightning round. Guys, are you ready? Totally. Already. Carter, I'm going to you first. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 to 10, how damaging are the revelations of Governor General Julie, uh, Julie Payette for Justin Trudeau and his government? On a scale of 1 to 10. You know, I'm a, I'm a cup half full kind of guy on this one, cup half empty. Um, the the I've worked with female politicians, and they get accused of things every single day that I don't necessarily, you know, that, that if a man was to do it, I don't think they get the same type of accusations. So I'm not sure that I'm buying this at this particular moment. I think that um, an investigation is is warranted, but uh, I think that, that women in high profiles um, are, are very poorly treated and uh, sometimes the accusations that, 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 that follow them aren't true. Now, having said that, if the accusations are true, then uh, the prime minister should be having a strong conversation with the, the governor general about uh, her future. And her future should probably involve uh, Elon Musk's trip to Mars. Uh, I think that that would be something that would be right up her alley, um, because you know if the if these accusations are true, uh, that's not that's not a good start. And, and I will say, uh, one of my uh, friends from politics tweeted that uh, he wasn't sure about the governor general's behavior, but he knows that her chief of staff is, and I'm quoting, a bully. So there's probably some some truth to this, uh, but uh, you know the the investigation's the right play. Uh, Carter, your your line, my friend from politics, almost sounds as fake as my Canadian girlfriend. By the way, just to let you know, <laughs> my friend from politics. Uh, Corey, same question to you. One to ten scale. How bad is this about? for for the prime minister? So I think it's an eight. Uh, I think this is about expectations, and her expectations of her staff uh, are not aligned with what her staff's expectations are of the job. And uh, this goes back to the early days of the GG, where it was it was pretty clear that she was less interested in being a ceremonial figurehead leader and wanted to mix it up a little bit more. And so in that case, I think that in some ways, this is a canary in the coal mine, but not for an abusive GG. For a GG who does not understand the job, is wanting more from the staff. I'll tell you something, the, the, the regal representative... That is not the bright center of the universe. That is not where you get the comms people who are working until midnight each night. 
And if that's her expectation of them, that's because she thinks she's in politics and she's not. And so I think the misalignment actually makes me think that there's a bigger problem that you've got to keep your eye on with the Gigi. And it's not about her being a bully. It's about the fact that she does not know what her job is. Great answer, Corey. Thank you for answering the question uh, on that one to 10 scale. I really appreciate I'm trying something new today. That means a lot to me. It does mean a lot to me. Uh, Carter, over to you. Are you in or out this week, in or out this week on what you've seen with the Conservative Party and their strategy, mainly focused on the Finance Committee, mainly focused on how they've, you know, uh, you know, unearthed some of the, the new allegations, how they've handled them? Are you in or out on what you're seeing from the Conservative Party this week? Well, I think it's still a fail for me. I mean, the 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 work that Skippy has done, Pierre Polyev, um, I always think it's too much. I think that you know they they were screaming uh, wolf from the very beginning, and now there there may be a wolf in the forty one thousand dollars from Morneau. Um, but because they were screaming it for so long, I've I've been you know I've been chatting with all kinds of people about this particular scandal. It's still not there. It's a three percent drop in the polling numbers, so that's a real drop in polling numbers. Uh, but in in terms of people who are on the street. Uh, you know, mountain biking like real people do. Uh, it's just not. It's not. It's not generating any, any real flair. Corey, are you in or out on the conservatives and what they've been doing this week? In. I mean, we're still talking about it. The polls are narrowing. Sheer is saying it's for the next leader to decide whether there's an election called. It's everything the CPC would have wanted three weeks ago. How do you possibly fault them for where they are today, given the shitstorm that is around the liberals right now? Corey is in. Carter is out. Carter, our next question for you on a scale of on a scale of one to ten. Once again, going back to one to ten, how well does Justin Trudeau perform at the Finance Committee? <laughs> uh, another prognostication question, Corey. Oh, get the recorder. Goodness. Get you the know, second I, backup recorder. <laughs> I think I think it's going to be. I think I think he's going to be very well rehearsed. I think his lines are going to be. Um, robotic and have that tone that makes me crazy. Uh, so I think it's I think it's going to be a robotic performance. Uh, I don't know where to put that on your scale. I'm going to give it uh, a mediocre. Oh, thank you, Carter, so much. Corey, same question to you. One to ten, how does Trudeau perform? Uh, it's like a popcorn movie. There's going to be a divide between the critics and the public. I think critics are going to hate it. They're going to give it like a three. Uh, because they will see that roboticness that Stephen has, has rightly pointed out and that, that not particularly overwhelmingly talented drama teacher thing that he sometimes has. Uh, I think the public is going to be sated by it, by and large. Not over overwhelmingly enthusiastic, but a six or a seven from the public. Corey, I'm going back to you uh, on this one. Yes or no, in the next couple of weeks, do we see someone from the Trudeau government resign. That could be a chief of staff. That could be Morneau. That could be someone in the mix. Let's say in the next three-week timeline. Yes or no? Are you seeing someone go? Well, I think you'll see resignations, but they're not going to be... Well, I don't know. This this one I, I'm curious about. Um, I'm not necessarily sure it would even be a smart idea, as I mentioned, for people to resign. It, it, it's quite possible even it's lower or in a different place than you think. Maybe someone in the public service falls on the... Maybe someone in the public service legitimately screwed up. And uh, I suspect that someone somewhere in that grand federal apparatus will resign related to this issue. Corey says yes and expands the scope. Carter, are we going to see someone resign in the next three weeks from the Trudeau government? No. 
absolutely not not going to happen uh i think that uh the reality well, that, now it is going to happen oh yeah for sure right <laughs> like it's just it's okay so just one second jeb bush is the guy you know Card- you're, you're unlikable you're unlikable is the problem uh i'm the likable one which is a real a real significant issue you got no the- there will be no resignation zane move on to your next question and our final question is a listener question. Once again, a listener question. That is correct. You can bribe us with a five-star review and ask a listener question. This one comes us to, to us from Jay Bumstead. Uh, the review is a bribe. I feel like this may be a Jay Bumstead we know. And he asks, what should the Edmonton team, formerly known as the Eskimos, change their name to? Uh, of course, we haven't had a lot of regional content on this, uh, on this particular episode. Uh, should it be uh, the Great Whites? Uh, question mark. An obscure symbol. Uh, Corey, you've put your hand up. Uh, this could only mean pure disaster. Go ahead. I I can kill two birds with one stone on this one. So, uh, Zane, you have some Edmonton roots. Yes. Uh, you're the vice son of the vice regal representative, yeah. for starters. Very well done again. Uh, yeah. You are aware that, uh, and for those who are not from Alberta, there was a controversy about a decade back where Edmonton took off their sign, City of Champions, and changed it to Ed- or Alberta's Capital City which just tells you a lot about the psyche that Edmonton sometimes carries around. Edmonton's a beautiful city, by the way. I love Edmonton. But we can kill two birds with one stone. You call them the Edmonton champions, and you put City of Champions back on that sign. Everybody is happy. I'll, I'll accept my, my applause now. Uh, Carter, you know, do you, what do you uh, what Do, do you, you remember think? back in the day that landed we, like we a first, stone? By the way, Corey. we first we first started talking about this, and I said the the problem is the CFL team does not have the money to redesign their logo. I am willing to put money down again, another ten bucks, Corey. This is going to be twenty bucks in your pocket this week. Um, ten bucks down that whatever the new word is, it's going to start with E just because they do not want to redesign that logo and have to redo uh, all of the branding that they've got everywhere because they literally can't afford it. So it will be the Edmonton Empire. It has been noted. It has been said. It shall be done. Corey, finish us off. It would be so easy. Just take part of the E out of the, the logo, the second no, E. It's not going to happen. Edmonton Champions. Every, it's too expensive. It's, I'm telling you, you right now. First. You heard it first. It's going to catch Empire. on like a prairie fire. You just watch. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. Jay Bumstead, thank you for your review. You can leave us a five-star review. We will ask your question. We may not ask your question. We may ignore it. We may, we may give completely overhyped answers like Corey Hogan just did, but we'll play around with it. <laughs> And we'll leave it there. That's a wrap for episode 813 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we will see you next time. 